to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streitfeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Ahead of today's episode, I sat down with Elizabeth Pramendorfer, the Global Center's Venezuela expert, to discuss the situation. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jackie. I'm so happy to be here. Can you give us your assessment of the situation in Venezuela? Absolutely. Um, Before that, I do want to say that I'm so excited that our listeners will get to listen to Beatriz Borges from CEPAS um, in this podcast, who is not only an inspirational human rights defender, but she's also a dear friend of the Global Center. And um, I hope that this podcast is going to be really informative for um, everyone that's tuning in. Um, We are in the eighth year of what we refer to as the multidimensional crisis or complex emergency that has affected Venezuelans across the country. And before I go into the current situation or how we got there, it may be useful for listeners to know that the Global Center has been officially covering the crisis since 2018. This is when a panel of experts designated by the Secretary General of the Organization of American States first warned that since at least 2014, state agents and government-aligned groups may have committed crimes against humanity in an attempt to silence dissent. And so this is where we at the Global Center began our extensive research and advocacy program to mobilize international action in response to the crisis including through ensuring independent investigations, judicial proceedings, political dialogue, and of course, most importantly, preventing further crimes. And it's probably obvious to those listeners who are familiar with the situation that in some areas there has been some success and in others not so much. And this brings me to the current situation in Venezuela. International attention on the crisis has decreased in uh, recent months. This is, I would say, a common phenomenon in our work and in our field. It's not unique to Venezuela. Usually, the longer a crisis goes on, the more fatigue sets in on how to deal with it. We see that in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, Yemen, Syria, and many, many other situations. But what they all have in common, and what is very much the case for Venezuela, is that suffering continues. And the multidimensional crisis continues to affect all areas of life. Only recently, in September this year, a UN Human Rights Council-mandated fact-finding mission on Venezuela warned that possible crimes against humanity continue to take place in Venezuela in a context of almost total impunity, in particular for the government leadership orchestrating, ordering, and overseeing these crimes. We know that systematic repression against actual or perceived opponents includes policies of arbitrary detention, often followed by torture and ill treatment, sexual and gender-based violence, and possible short-term enforced disappearances. 
independent UN investigations have found that at times it is President Nicolas Maduro himself or members of his inner circle who are actually involved in identifying targets who will later end up in one of the infamous and often covert detention centers. There are actually hundreds of pages by the fact-finding mission, as well as extensive reporting by Venezuelan civil society organizations, which detail unimaginable acts of torture and violence that victims have to endure and continue to endure as we speak. These are perpetrated by intelligence agencies, which reward brutality and punish disobedience by its own members. We also know that over the past years, security forces have perpetrated tens of thousands of alleged extrajudicial executions in an apparent attempt to combat crime. Venezuelan human rights project Lupa por la Vida documented at least 485 alleged extrajudicial killings only in the first quarter of 2022 alone. These are 485 people who have families, who have loved ones, who have kids, or are themselves still children. And although it doesn't make the headlines as often as it should, communities along Venezuela's border with Colombia and other areas of the country are also at heightened risk of egregious abuses by non-state armed groups or criminal gangs, which oftentimes act with the consent and direct involvement of the same Venezuelan state agents that have been identified as perpetrators of possible crimes against humanity. We know that regular clashes between armed groups along the border have resulted in mass displacement, civilian fatalities, disappearances, and the forced recruitment of children. In Venezuela's gold mining region, Arco Minero del Orinoco, state agents and armed criminal groups are committing killings, sexual and gender-based violence, torture, corporal punishment and disappearances, including against indigenous populations, to ensure control over profitable territory and in the context of widespread impunity. And what enables and emboldens all of this is a deeply malfunctioning judicial system, which is actually complicit in ongoing violence. This has resulted in the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court to open an investigation into possible atrocity crimes in the country. But it's really important for me to stress that the crisis is so much more complex than that. At the same time as we see state agents committing abuses against populations across the country, Venezuela has been experiencing an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. And its sheer scale and impact is difficult to imagine unless you have experienced it yourself. Millions and millions of people are in need of humanitarian assistance and relief. There are official numbers, which state that over 7 million people remain in need of humanitarian assistance owing to the ongoing political and economic crisis. But actual numbers, including those documented by Venezuelan civil society organizations, are estimated to be significantly higher. More than 7.1 million people have left the country since 2014. Many of them, looking for safety, have actually found themselves even more vulnerable, subject to trafficking, violence, sexual abuse, and exploitation. But this crisis, in all of its complexity, did not erupt out of nowhere. It was preceded by years of gradual erosion of the rule of law and democratic space, endemic corruption, economic mismanagement, and collapse. 
we simply failed to address these warning signs at an early stage. And I would say that in fact, at least to some extent, we failed to address the crisis even at its very peak. Over the past years, largely as a result to the political crisis and deadlock between the government and the very diverse opposition, the international community has experienced times of deep polarization, often leading to paralyzation. We have not yet understood that the solution to the crisis is not found in Washington, in Brussels, or anywhere else. It's found by listening and taking on board the action that Venezuelans themselves want their government and the wider international community to take. And we are also at a really key moment in Venezuela today. The country is heading into an electoral period, and we know that repression and crackdown on civic space will likely intensify. We have been here before. We ignored the warning signs and we failed to respond in a way that puts Venezuelans at the forefront of the crisis. So whoever is listening and in whatever capacity you do so, I hope we can all ask ourselves, what are we going to do differently this time? And there really is no quick solution to the crisis. It will take years, probably decades. System-wide reform, building democratic space, accountability, which includes justice, but also an accurate record of what has happened, the truth, healing. This does not happen overnight. It requires long-term engagement by the wider international community through pressure, but also through dialogue. And the good news is we really don't need to come up with solutions. We have all the analysis, necessary action, paths to take, decisions to make, that so many of our civil society colleagues in Venezuela continuously share with us, and they tell us what to do. And so this is what I will do right now. I'll sit back and I'll actually listen to Beatriz, and I hope you all do too. Thank you. Today I'm joined by Beatriz Borges, Executive Director of Centro de Justicia y Paz, or CIPAS. Thank you for joining us today, Beatriz. Thank you for having me and thank you for that, this opportunity to share about our work in CIPAS and in Venezuela. Your organization, CIPAS, is one of the most well-known Venezuelan civil society organizations working on cross-cutting issues in the country over the past few years. Could you tell us how the organization started and what led you to establish it? Well, in 2014, the environment of repression and criminalization when citizens exercise the right uh, was um, a moment where I was teaching uh, law and human rights at the university and working also the, for the Human Rights Center of uh, Catholic University. And I saw that uh, we need um, more about how people know about their rights and how they can defend um, them. And what led me to found CEPAS, I felt motivated to conduct workshop human rights and to give uh, persons and citizens um, the tools. And when they received this workshop around the, the country, they told me if I had known this before, uh, this knowledge, my response to this arbitrariness of which the state treat them and, and oh, I was a victim will have to be different. And that uh, made me understand the importance to give a space for citizens to ask the right and 
and to know uh, as a citizen how to defend the human rights. And along with CEPAS was created the network of citizen activists, REDAC, um, uh, with the possibility of citizen empowerment of, of, in favor of human rights. And now they can uh, constantly uh, work and organize themselves themselves and, and tr- tr- work in a collaborative way with the methodology of the 3D for human rights, that is documentation, denunciation, and dissemination. Um, in that moment, we understand the, the possibilities and also the necessity that to work for human rights, peace, and democracy, how you have to uh, work uh, with the human rights in the center. And well, has been a, a long path, but uh, now that network is not just in Venezuela. Now with the um, human mobility crisis, uh, we have the nat- national network, but today we are present in 14 countries than all m- our members that used to uh, live in Venezuela and for other nationalities are connected in this platform to do activism in favor to peace, human rights, and democracy. I know you've been working, as as you just mentioned, as a human rights defender and a, a professor of human rights long before the crisis in Venezuela um, started. Could you share what your experience was from the time period in, in 2014 when the situation first began to deteriorate? Yeah, at that moment, we start to see, as I said, the criminalization and, and repression and this, the importance of documenting about uh, what's what concerning about civil and political rights, specifically uh, uh, political persecution. Um, at that time, uh, uh, they talk about uh, political uh, being uh, individual cases but we start to identify uh, patterns of persecution. And with the persecution, the persecution against dissidents was not seen as a, at that time like as a human right issue, but today has been recognized as a state policy uh, by different mechanisms, international mechanisms as the fact-finding mission. Um, we start to make, uh, make reports about cases of persecution, we identify the patterns, we uh, have this uh, um, um, annual monitoring of the situation. Um, That is why we understand how this um, system of repression and persecution exists and how it has been built to uh, cancel, to disappear all the the, the people, person or, or leaders or student, students or um, journalists of human rights defenders who the signs of the government or, or think different or ask for the rights. And this system is active to uh, keep in the power and to threat all and criminalize, criminalize all uh, citizens or leaders who are uh, asking uh, or are asking for the rights or um, giving information about corruption or uh, organizing themselves to change uh, the political reality. 
And that uh, situation makes us also to look justice in the international path and open all the cases and the, the ways to make international uh, community understand what was happening in Venezuela and also to find um, different mechanisms to help in the international bodies of human rights to look for this justice for Venezuelan victims and to show what was happening in Venezuela. You know, in the atrocity prevention space, we often talk about the importance of action upon early warning and prevention of atrocities. A lot of risk factors that we talk about uh, in atrocity prevention are some of the things you've you've mentioned just now, you know, gradual erosion of rule of law, dismantling of democratic institutions to sort of build power um, in the hands of, of just particular people, uh, erosion of the ju- judicial system, increasing repression, you know, all of these things sort of should be red flags um, for all of us and uh, emerge long before a crisis escalates into atrocities. Uh, looking back to eight years ago, what kind of action do you think could have helped mitigate the multidimensional crisis in Venezuela? Well, along with the political persecution that we start to see in Venezuela uh, in the earliest years, uh, since 2015, we find uh, found uh, how um, this uh, erosion of the um, the capacity to the state to respond to the necessities necessities to the people start to uh, produce uh, what they call uh, an emergency complex humanitarian, no? a complex humanitarian emergency that is um, um, a multi multidimensional crisis who affects all the population. And uh, we uh, gave to the international community, but also we litigate in national courts an early warning about what was happening because we saw all the levels of the of the um, how the human rights in all the dimension were affecting not just the food, the right of food, the health, but all the levels. And we start a journey with especially with the United Nations, to tell them what was happening in Venezuela, what are the levels. And also, I remember in 2017, uh, telling them how was the human mobility crisis in a very important component of the crisis. Well, years before we have the, the recognition of the of, of the understanding about the crisis, the, the humanitarian crisis and the human mobility crisis. But after a long uh, and profound uh, human suffering, and that's why show us the importance of, of the international mechanism to have this prevention mechanism and have these actions uh, early in the stage that they can prevent and avoid human suffering. And when the humanitarian uh, uh, architecture and also with international response uh, about the international mechanism were activated, um, we lost a lot of people uh, because the 
humanitarian emergency and also for the repression. But uh, it was like a, a sweet, sour feeling that all the mechanisms were activated and we hope that um, the response about the humanitarian crisis and, and all the dimensions were effective. Um, this is, has been a, a very challenging path and, and also show off the importance of the uh, how they uh, should be coordinated with uh, the war with the complex humanitarian emergency and all the dimension of the crisis. Um, because, because it's complex and have so many dimensions, it's important to work in a comprehensive and holistic way. Um, our work has been uh, very important as a civil society in the international mechanism because in Venezuela, we lost the capacity to uh, the institutions and authorities to uh, respond correctly uh, to the dignity and to the right of people. And that's why for this year has been so important the role of the civil society and um, asking for international mechanism to help Venezuela in the different dimension of the crisis. I really, um, you know, we're we're constantly inspired by the way that you approach this crisis and, and the way you frame it as being kind of a, a multidimensional crisis that thus requires um, a comprehensive and holistic approach. Because, um, you know, in so much of our work, we see these sort of very, we say siloed, but, you know, um, kind of fractured approaches to crises where you think of it as a human rights situation. And so you you throw all the human rights mechanisms at it, but often forget that there are people who are, are starving because it's also a humanitarian crisis. Um, and that all of these international parts need to work together just as much as all of the kind of domestic parts work together. So um, it's always wonderful to hear you talk about how you've approached the situation in Venezuela. Um, as you've mentioned, both in terms of, of the network that you mentioned at the beginning and, and what you've just said about civil society working together, you know, Venezuela has an incredibly vibrant civil society with hundreds of uh, CSOs, humanitarian actors, and human rights defenders working uh, in partnership across the country. Um, but doing this work leaves many of you at great risk of threats, intimidation, harassment, and persecution, uh, often at the hands of the government itself. In what ways does this complex and dangerous environment affect your ability to do your work? Well, as you say, it's very challenging to bring this uh, global and comprehensive and not silo uh, approach about the situation in Venezuela. Um, and, and also I think the challenge is to create the connections and the nexus between them. And now this, uh, that vision that um, uh, is understanding about the nexus and how all the crises are connected um, and you cannot uh, uh, work uh, without this approach of peace, develop and humanitarian and put the human rights in the centers. I think this be or this should be an approach and as a civil society 
and so it's inspired being part of civil society in Venezuela, as you say, for me has been uh, as a Venezuelan citizens, the work of civil society has been uh, the light of what happened in Venezuela right now, because thanks to civil society uh, working in this different dimension, peace, developed humanitarian human rights, has been how the what happened in Venezuela has been known uh, around the world and also in Venezuela because we don't have any official data about anything. And thank you for this work that civil society do doc documenting and also raising data and, and, and explaining the complexity and the reality of Venezuela is why we could activate this mechanism and international bodies. And also as we um, bring the, the, the information, give the, the, the understanding about the solution that it has to be also connected with all the, the dimension of the crisis, the crisis and also how democracy or the fight for the right of democracy is something important in Venezuela because the base, the base of the, the crisis is political, uh, but uh, the consequences are in, in all the dimensions about human rights. And in this work, civil society has been threatened and criminalized also, and has been also victim of reprisals of persecution. Um, we now have uh, human rights defenders on jail uh, for uh, go to for when to do a, a, a denounce about the human rights violations, and uh, organization who gave humanitarian help also have been um, arbitrary detentions um, victims, and uh, it's very risky and and is uh, uh, be a human rights defender work with a civil society organization in Venezuela in the humanitarian field or the human rights field is uh, dangerous in Venezuela. And um, that's why I think um, not just that it's, it's inspiring, but it's something that have the crisis in Venezuela than others, for example, Nicaragua, Cuba doesn't have. Is a, and always when I ask or when I talk with international communities, I, I, I say this, it's important to protect civil society in Venezuela, uh, because this is the way that you know what is happening. And, and civil society is not just documenting, but also is trying to bring ideas how to fight and how to build the path for peace and democracy and justice. Um, this is something that we not give up. This is something we're still trying, even if it's very complex uh, environment and uh, we are uh, in an authoritarian uh, situation. We try to find a way um, about uh, how people asking for the rights, organizing themselves and understanding the possibilities to uh, fight for the rights in this environment can make the difference and um, um, lead the the the, the the country to uh, political transformation and restoring the, the rights in the country. And is there anything that the international community or external stakeholders like 
um, international civil society organizations can do to actively support uh, Venezuelan civil society in this work? Yes, well, uh, I think there are so many things that um, they are they have to do and they do, but it's, done, it's, it's really important to remember always, first, recognize this work and recognize uh, what is happening there and what is the role that civil society is playing. And also um, something uh, that always happened with the humanitarian and the human rights crisis is uh, support the work of the uh, organizations. There is a, an environment and is one of the pattern of persecution of the government that criminalize uh, the access of international cooperation and that make difficult for the international communities to, to support um, civil society in Venezuela. But it's important to keep this support, to keep... Um, um, and when I talk about international cooperation, is recognition, is resources, is all the possibilities to support that the civil society exists and protect them uh, before uh, reprisals and criminalizations and attacks. Um, because um, this is uh, the way that um, um, the government uh, keeping the power to having the, these uh, voices in silence and have the space to hear uh, what is doing and what are what is denounced as civil society. I think it's also important because uh, with the censorship and with the restriction of the um, um, expression in Venezuela, it's important to have uh, safe channels to communicate uh, constantly with civil society. And, 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 and also uh, understand that um, uh, work in different dimensions of the crisis need to have a diversity of the actors in civil society who works in different fields um, have this approach to different dimensions of the crisis. Absolutely. I support um, all of that. <laughs> I think that not enough is done in um, international advocacy and international work to, to kind of elevate these voices from within the country and understand the diversity of um, actors who need to be engaged um, and also need to be supported and properly protected through the process of, of hearing their perspectives. No, and also happen when it's a crisis like Venezuela, so complex and the long-term crisis that sometimes the international community doesn't know how to, what else to do. Mm -hmm. And that's why we, uh, as I said, that like civil society, we don't give up. And also we are rethinking all the ways that in a peaceful uh, way we can recover democracy and we can recover rights in our country. Uh, but we cannot do alone. We need the support. Um, that's why um, uh, the vision of the crisis in, in Venezuela cannot be in a short term, should be in long term. But uh, working for human rights, justice and peace is something we do for future generation because it has been a very long 
term of, of deterioration and recover that, you cannot do it in one day. Um, that's why it's, it's working with Venezuela. It is not a short-term duty. Um, the devastation takes place over a long, long period. And is this restoration will require the involvement of many people and recover institutions and also bet to new generation of defender who will uh, witness the lesson that a terrible moment in, moment in our history taught, taught us that hope will not happen again. That's something when I feel tired, <laughs> I tell myself that we are not working for your present because there are so many things to do. You are working for your future and for change. The Venezuela that I, I knew before and how to become better in the future and how a new generation of men and women from Venezuela can recover the state and can recover the country and can recover the rights that that what happened in, in our country um, won't happen again. That's a beautiful way of, of looking at it and, and looking at kind of the potential impact of the work you're doing now, especially at a time when I think many of us feel kind of frustrated um, with the present. And um, I think I'll, I'll hold that close to me when I think about Venezuela and other countries moving forward. With that in mind, do you think that the international community is effectively addressing the crisis in its full complexity and and in terms of thinking towards that future that you want to envision, or is it still very much that kind of short-term solutions and in siloed approaches? Well, I think this is a, a, a very this is a very important to to have this question because there is there has been a lot of expectation about what is gonna happen in in, in Venezuela. And I think uh, first we need this human rights center approach, but also has an equilibrium between peace, humanitarian and, and develop uh, and understand that are those dimensions are connections are not repelling themselves. Uh, war for humanitarian and war for peace um, should be um, in a, in a in the same way. Sometimes an international actor told us, I, I cannot ask for justice because uh, you are, uh, Venezuela is in a negotiation and we want that uh, Venezuelan uh, um, situation uh, get better. But it's not going to get better if you don't wor work uh, or you put your efforts uh, in the same way like we, you can, we cannot think in peace without justice. We cannot think um, just in humanitarian health without thinking how we recover democracy. Um, that's why this approach uh, between how uh, international communities see the solution in Venezuela uh, is important because you cannot uh, normalize what is bad to things or to say that things are getting better because people are still suffering. And also this um, 
it's important that the we have this national and international political actor have steps toward dialogue, negotiation, and reestablishment of relation with Venezuela, but understand uh, because has been uh, insulated um, in the last years. But um, this mediation for involved in the dialogue is important for the construction of uh, a peace, uh, and but they cannot forget the human right violations and the loss of institutionality that we have right now. And you cannot, uh, it's like in the same time that you have monitoring and accountability uh, about human rights, is uh, have the same uh, have have uh, as a very important before in an authoritarian government. Um, the word that the ICC and the FFM, uh, the International Criminal Court, and the Fact and Mission, is very important to uh, as a message of the international community that even if they want for Venezuela um, a peaceful. Uh, access to the crisis, they cannot allow, they cannot permit that international crimes and uh, gross human violations have not a justice response. And that is important to understand because uh, support justice and accountability at the same time of negotiation and, and peaceful solution are not contradictory. It's imperative to have both. Peace building is not again following the process of monitoring human regulations. Countries like Venezuela have an strategic of simulation of peace and justice and a way to not fail into this manipulation or, or confusion is to focus on human rights indicators and fulfill of recommendation of human rights bodies. And this is also a very important work that civil society with all the documentation or international human rights bodies I give to Venezuela. We have their recommendation and we, we play using the system in a smart way, where way is important. And, and this is a way I, I think should be the approach right now of international community, understand the important see the different dimensions, understand how human rights should be in the center and how still uh, support justice and accountability and the same time of negotiations and pieces, a peaceful solution in Venezuela. Since you've, you've touched on the FFM and what you were just saying, you know, I want to recognize that the renewal of the FFM at the Human Rights Council was a huge success, um, obviously largely supported and advocated by civil society. But it's now up to the member states to actually do something with the information that the FFM provides as they evaluate policies and engagement with Venezuela. Um so with that said, what should states and other stakeholders do with the information reported by the FFM or other investigative bodies, um, as well as civil society reporting? Yeah, well, um, as I said in the beginning, we don't, 
we don't have in Venezuela independent and impartial um, court and institutions that you can go there to protect your rights. And there is a system, a repressor system active to criminalize, to uh, persecute uh, for political reasons. That's why this international mechanism helped not just to understand what happened in the past and to understand how that system of repression worked, but also is active or uh, they're open what to monitoring the situation that is occurring right now because the persecution and the criminalization and the arbitrary detentions and torture is still happening in Venezuela. And that's why have this mechanism, not only the fact and emission, but also the, the presence on the ground of the high commissioner team of, uh, from the office of the high commissioner of human rights, and also have this uh, ICC procedure open uh, is an important response for victims and also for civil society that um, the international community, the international bodies know that in Venezuela, these situations are happening. Um, they are not being ignored. Um, we are, they are monitoring how they evolved because also they, they have an evolution uh, about how the pattern of the system is working. Um, and they also is very sophisticated because um, in different moments uh, function in different ways. For example, when protests or when there are elections or in, in the moment of the pandemic, um, the patterns and the wave of persecution change. And this international mechanism not only help to have this historical evolution and um, file for all the cases, all the cases that have they have known, but also for the future, every process of international um, justice or transitional justice in Venezuela can use all this information, was, what was documented for this mechanism to bring um, uh, answers to the, the, the victims that were uh, were impact for 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 the repression and also for for the uh, humanitarian situation and for this long dark period of the story of Venezuela. This this work of the Fakani mission is doing and all the other mechanism is not important just for the past. It's important just for for the future and also for the present to uh, have. Also, I think it has the contention of, of, uh, for victims and also for, for the government of Maduro to still committing um, more human rights violations because they know that these mechanisms are monitoring them. And that's why it's so important. And that's why we work so hard to the renewal of the mission. And that's why we, have, uh, we know that they have too much work to do in the future because Next, uh, in 2024 and 2025, we are going to have elections. 
um, that are important moments to, to monitoring what happened in Venezuela in terms of persecution and criminalization. Um, also, there is a lot of information that they, they, they can recover uh, and they can document about what happened in Venezuela and what is still happening. That's why I think uh, as a civil society, we are very um, uh, working hard uh, to uh, bring all the information and, and help uh, the, the, the work of international mechanism in Venezuela. And, and also with all the recommendation acts uh, for the possibility to implement them uh, in a way to restore us and, and look for the reinstitutionalization in, in the country. Before we close, I just want to ask, as someone who is so personally impacted by the current crisis in Venezuela, what are your thoughts on the future and the situation? Well, I think when you hear about Venezuela, always are bad news and, and the situation is so complicated and give you the sense like where, what is going to happen and this sense or no hope. But I, I think I want to finish this interview talking about hope um, and how as a civil society, as Venezuelan, uh, I think that um, this moment and very uh, painful moment that as a Venezuelan we have lived uh, is, is important to become an, an opportunity to learn as a person what happened when you, or the importance of prevent, or the importance of, 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 of work uh, uh, against these atrocity crimes in the, in the countries, the importance of uh, fight for, for human rights, the complexities that in Venezuela, but in the global, uh, global level we are facing, and how civil society and how uh, every citizen can organize and can put uh, the center in human rights and don't... Um, stop to, to asking and don't give up and look the path to uh, find the ways to transform and change the, the crisis um, and think that that is possible if we uh, work together to do that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and would be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.